Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Elle has asked me and Zach as we fill the pulpit to do our own series in the Old Testament. So Zach's going to be preaching through the servant songs in Isaiah, and I'm going to be doing a series on origins from Genesis 1 through 3. And last time uh, when I preached, we looked at Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 and considered the origin of everything. And today we're going to look at Genesis 1, 3 through 25, and we'll consider the origin of life. As you find your place in your Bible or on your device, I'd encourage you to keep it open this morning as we'll be going back to it again and again. I'm going to disappoint some of you this morning in a sermon on the origin of life from Genesis chapter 1. I'm not going to set out to debunk evolution. I'm not going to talk about the age of the earth. And I'm not even going to argue for a particular interpretation of the creation days. And and by the way, there's a PCA position paper put out in June of 2000 that says that those men who ordained in the Presbyterian Church in America can hold one of four positions. There's the calendar day position, the day-age position, the framework position, and the analogous day position. And while all of these things, discrediting evolution, talking about the age of the earth, determining which view of creation days you take, while all those things are important and worthy of our study, they're not the point of the text. You see, Moses isn't writing to debunk or to talk to to you about your 21st century post-enlightenment scientific questions. Moses is writing to introduce you to the one true God. You see, in our cultural moment, we've been defined by science and technology, by discovery and invention. We put a man on the moon, we have the internet and smartphones, and so when we think about the origin of life, we want to think scientifically, we want to think empirically, we want to think materially. And that's good, but that's not the only way of thinking. In the 1997 movie Contact, Jodie Foster plays a scientist, and Jodie Foster wants to know everything that she can know, but she only wants to know the things that she can prove, right? She only wants to know the things that she can know empirically and scientifically. And so there's a scene in the movie where Matthew McConaughey, who plays a religious figure, maybe somewhat ironically, but plays a religious figure, a man of the cloth, um, right, asks Jodie Foster, he says, did you love your dad? And she says, oh, of course, deeply. And he says to her, prove it. And of course she can't, right? Because empirical knowledge falls short. Sometimes science doesn't have all of the answers. In your reflection quote this morning, John Walton is referencing C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in which Eustace, the annoying uh, cousin that nobody really likes and is always getting into trouble, meets Ramanadu, 
who's a retired star, not, not like a popular guy, but a retired, you know, celestial body, right? And uh, Eustace says to Ramanadu, he says, oh, in our world, stars are a flaming ball of gas. And Ramanadu replies to Eustace and says, my son, even in your world, that's not what a star is. That's only what a star is made of. And John Walton says that's the kind of thinking that we need to bring to the book of Genesis. We're going to look at our passage this morning, Genesis 1, under three frames. First of all, we'll consider forming and filling. Secondly, we'll consider the foundations of life. And thirdly, we'll consider seven formulas in the text. So forming and filling the foundations of life, and seven formulas in the text. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. God created the heavens and the earth with purpose and design to give you life. Let me say that again. God created the heavens and the earth with purpose and design to give you life. Let's look at Genesis 1, beginning at verse 3. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with the waters uh, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day and God said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so and god made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and god saw that it was good the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our god stands forever would you pray with me Heavenly Father, as we come to the miracle of creation, as you give the gift of life on this earth, I pray that you would convince us of our sins and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many, May we see Jesus and him only. Amen. So first of all this morning, let's consider then forming and filling. Forming and filling. Genesis 1 begins at the very beginning. Verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything out of nothing. But then look at the raw state of God's creating in verse 2. This is the beginning stage of God's beginning work. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, without form and void, that is formless and empty, is a picture of barrenness and chaos. There is no purpose, there is no meaning, there is no function, there is no order. And the main thrust of Genesis 1 is giving the gift of life. But this space is lifeless. And there's more. Darkness and deep, or the abyss or waters, deep could also be translated. Darkness and deep are terrors in the ancient Near East. They brought death and destruction. Now, it's a common literary device and narrative in general, and here in our text in, in particular, to move from problem to resolution. And that narrative technique is used to drive the reader forward in the text. And verse 2 provides a framework for Genesis 1. Verse 2 provides the problems that God's going to solve, the questions that God's going to answer. You see, God's going to form the formlessness, and he's going to fill the emptiness and shine light into the darkness and separate the dry land out of the waters. And as he does, He's going to bring order 
and beauty. He's going to bring life and purpose. You can hear Isaiah from our call to worship in Isaiah 45, 18, using the framework of forming and filling. Isaiah says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Or He formed it to be filled. And it's usually portrayed like this, if I can get that first slide, Andre. You've got the problems here of formlessness and emptiness. And then you have those problems being addressed by forming and filling. On days one through three, God is forming light, sky and water, dry land. These are oftentimes called kingdoms, right? And then with the emptiness, he's filling it. Day four, he fills it with sun, moon, and stars. Day five, birds and fish. Day six, animals and man. And then on day seven, God rests, right? And you can see God addressing the problems, formlessness and emptiness. He's forming and filling. He's addressing darkness by creating light. He's addressing the deep by forming dry land. And you can see symmetry and intentionality in the shape of the narrative. You see what God's doing here? Moses is writing a beautiful artistic design in the narrative that describes God's beautiful and artistic design in the world. You've heard the saying that the medium is the message. Well, here God is communicating His order, His design, His purpose with a purposeful and ordered design. He's using, Moses is using his skill as a storyteller to explain the skill of the Creator. Moses is telling you that God forms the formlessness and shines light into the darkness and separates the dry land out of the waters. God brings order to the chaos. And why? To give you life. Thanks, Andre. That's forming and filling. Secondly, we have the foundations of life. Now remember, Moses isn't isn't writing to answer your modern questions. He's writing to introduce you to the one true God. So Moses uses a story form that's common for his day, an ancient pattern for the way origins were told among the people of the Near East. And there were similar accounts in Mesopotamia and Babylon and Egypt, accounts that Moses likely would have learned growing up in Pharaoh's court. And God, through Moses, accommodates to his audience, not only using language they would understand, but also telling the story in a story form that they would recognize. Now, When addressing origins, our modern approach wants to talk about material and substance and science. But science is sometimes incomplete. If you were to come up to me after the service and say, to tell me a little bit about who you are. And I I were to say to you, well, I have skin cells and hair, heart, arteries, veins, capillaries, lungs, a liver. I don't have a a gallbladder anymore, but I've got an amazing spleen and my colon's pretty good, right? 
I'm not telling you who I am. I'm telling you what I'm made of, right? And what something is made of is different than what something is. And Moses, when it comes to origins, is more interested in purpose and design and function rather than material and substance and science. Because something's purpose tells you more about it than something's substance. What something is made for says more about it than what something is made of. And so I want to look at days one through three through the frame of purpose, design, and function as God gives us the foundations of life. Now, I'm leaning heavily on John Walton here, and while I have some substantial disagreements with him elsewhere in his commentary on Genesis, I find him very helpful here. First of all, let's consider day one, verses three through five. On day one, God creates light. He separates light from darkness. But did you notice what he called it? It's there in verse five. He calls the light day and the darkness night. And I never really thought about this until I was studying for this sermon. But why doesn't he just call the light light and the darkness darkness, right? But why does he call it day? Well, he does it because he's not talking about the structure or the material of light. Like, is light a particle or a wave? No, he's talking about what? He's talking about the purpose of light. Walton explains it this way. For since what is called into existence is a period of light that is distinguished from a period of darkness and that is named day, we must inevitably consider day one as describing the creation of time. Describing the creation of time. This is a partial explanation as to why light is created on day one, but the sun isn't created what? Until day four, down in verse 16. God creates time before he creates the sun, moon, and stars to govern time. This, in fact, is the purpose of the sun, moon, and stars. Look there at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for what? for signs and for seasons and for days and years. In other words, God gives the sun, the moon, and the stars so that we can set our calendar by them. God gives the gift of time. And by the way, did you notice on day four, verses 14 through 19, that the sun and moon aren't even called by name? Did you notice how they were referred to? They were referred to as the greater light and the lesser light. You see, in many ancient Near Eastern cultures, the sun and the moon were important deities. In fact, in Egypt, Ra, the sun god, was the primary deity. But in the Bible, God alone is a sovereign creator. He has no rivals. So to eliminate any confusion, lest you think that there are other gods, the names sun and moon aren't even acknowledged in the text. Day one, God gives us the gift 
of time. Day two, verses six through eight. On day two, God creates the expanse, and in the expanse, He separates the waters below from the waters above, and He calls it heaven or sky. So what is this expanse? Well, it's also translated vault or space or firmament, and the Hebrew word has the sense of a solid sheet of beaten metal. Now, in the ancient Near East, the people believed that the sky was solid. Can I get a pick that next slide there, Andre? This is a, an ancient Near Eastern cosmogony, and I know it's difficult to read, but the main thing that you need to understand here is that you've got the, the earth, the dry land gathered here, and then here you've got the waters above, right? And this dome, this solid dome here in the ancient Near Eastern cosmogony was thought of as the firmament or the expanse, right? And so taken literally, the idea of the expanse in an ancient Near Eastern cosmogony was a solid dome to hold up the waters above the earth. Now this may be a little disappointing, right? We know that the sky is not a solid metal dome. Does this mean that there are errors in the Bible? Well, if you woke up this morning and looked and on this cold day saw a beautiful sunrise and you said, wow, what a beautiful sunrise. Or if you were so happy that you said, wow, I, I'm, just, I'm on cloud nine today. Or if you were saying, man, that job, that job was just a piece of cake. Are there errors in your speech? No. You're using an idiom, and the idiom, while not technically or scientifically correct, because you all know the sun doesn't rise, right? While not scientifically or technically correct are commonly understood figures of speech that communicate an idea. Now Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have said, look y'all, because Moses was Southern, right? Look y'all, the sky, this expanse is actually atmosphere, this word that you've never heard before. It's actually atmosphere, and there are these molecules that are bouncing around that refract the light. That's why the sky is blue. And there's evaporation and water cycles. And the original audience would have been completely lost. They would have had no idea what Moses was talking about. And this isn't a scientific text. That's not the point. You see, by using the word expanse, God through Moses, is accommodating to his audience. And Moses is using the cosmogony of his day, their understanding of the structure of the universe in order to communicate an idea. You see, the focus isn't on the substance of the expanse. The focus is on the function of the expanse, the purpose of the expanse. And what's the purpose? God is controlling the waters. And the waters were one of the problems in verse 2. God is bringing order to the chaos. 
Gordon Wenham says, certainly Genesis 1 is not concerned with defining the nature of the firmament, but with asserting God's power over the waters. The separation of heaven and earth is a familiar theme in ancient cosmologies, but the control of the waters seems to be unique to Genesis. And how does God control the waters? Look at verse 7. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Now, God's going to further separate the waters under the expanse on day three. But what are those waters above? And you can see the waters above here, the waters above the firmament, above the expanse. Well, the waters above were the mechanism in this cosmogony, right, to control precipitation. It was designed to control the rain. In other words, the purpose of the expanse, Moses is telling the second generation Israelites on the plains of Moab about to enter the promised land that God controls even the weather, and this is something that is unique to the Hebrew God of Israel. God alone controls the weather. John Walton says, order in the cosmos, for people especially, depended on the right amount of precipitation. Too little and we starve. Too much and we are overwhelmed. Cosmic waters posed a continual threat and the firmament has been created as a means of establishing the cosmic order. God, on day two, gives the gift of weather. Thanks, Andre. On day three, day three, verses 9 through 13, now God gathers the waters that are below into one place, and the dry land emerges, right? And he calls the dry land earth, and he calls the waters that he's gathered seas. I want you to notice something about day three. Did you notice that there's no new creation here? There's no new substance. There's no new material. It's the organization of existing material, God continues what he started on day two, where he separated the waters from the waters in order to bring order to the heavens. And now, on day three, God separates the waters from dry land in order to bring order to the earth. So there's no new creation, no new substance. If there's no new creation, why are we including this in the creation account? Because this text isn't about material or substance or science. This text is about design and purpose and function. And on day three, God brings order to the earth. He makes the earth an inhabitable place to live. But did you notice there's a second act on day three? After differentiating the dry land, in verse 11, God says, let the earth sprout vegetation. Let the earth sprout vegetation. What's this doing here? What's happening here? Well, God is giving a purpose. God is giving a function to the earth. And what is it? 
The earth's function is to sprout vegetation in two kinds, plants bearing seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. Well, why, why include this? Why does the earth sprout vegetation? Look down at verse 29. I know we didn't read it this morning, but it's part of Genesis 1. Verse 29, God says to man who's newly created, man and woman, he says, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. You shall have them for food. You see, the earth is sprouting vegetation so that God can provide food for his people. Walton says, day three reflects the wonder of the ancient world at the whole idea that plants grew, dropped seed, and that more of the same plant came from that tiny seed. The cycle of vegetation, the principles of fertilization, the blessing of fecundity, all of these were seen as part of the amazing provision of food that was so necessary for people to survive. In other words, part of the purpose, part of the function of the earth was to provide food. And so God gives the gift of food. As God forms the formlessness and fills the emptiness and shines light in the darkness and separates the dry land out of the waters, He gives three gifts. Three gifts that are necessities and essential for life. Day one, He gives the gift of time. Day two, He gives the gift of weather. Day three, He gives the gift of food. But it's not just these. You see, on day one, he separates the light from the darkness. And on day two, he separates the waters above from the waters below. And on day three, he separates the dry land from the waters. And God is creating an inhabitable space. He's creating a safe environment that can sustain life. And so on days one through three, God gives the foundation of life. It's part of his design. He brings order out of chaos, and everything has a purpose. Most of our dystopian movies imagine a world where one of these gifts, where one of these structures is lost. In the movie Matrix, there's the loss of light. In Waterworld, the world is overwhelmed by you know, water, because that's the title of the movie. Uh, in Armageddon and Deep Impact, there's the instability of the sky. In 2012 and the day after tomorrow, it's the instability of the earth. And with Interstellar, it's the loss of food, right? You see, the loss of any one of these many gifts, any one of these many structures that God pr provides, and our lives would be in peril. Life would be unsustainable. We'd be fighting for our survival. And Moses wants you to see with wonder and awe how as God crafts these intricate parts, they come together to give the gift of life. John Walton compares it to the physiology of an eye. 
in seventh grade, um, I got to dissect a cow's eye. Anybody else have that privilege of dissecting? Yeah, I see some hands out there dissecting a cow's eye. Don't worry, they got it from science. I, I didn't go like to the cow and get the eye out. Like it was given to me on a platter. You dissect it and you find like, oh, here's, here's the cornea, right? Here's the retina, here's the optic nerve. These are all the different parts of the eye, right? But here's the miracle of the eye. Beyond all of our material understanding of all of the different parts, those parts come together in such a way that we can see. That we can see. And in the same way, all the parts, dirt and water, chlorophyll and air, they come together in a way that God gives the gift of life. That's the miracle of Genesis 1. And Moses is saying, that's your God. And so life comes forth. On day 5, verses 20 through 23, God creates living creatures that swarm in the water and birds in the sky according to their kinds. And Moses goes out of the way here to mention sea creatures, saying that even the sea monsters, those terrors of the deep, are under God's control and part of an ordered system. And then on day 6, verses 24 through 25, God makes the beasts of the earth and the livestock and all the creepy things, which makes me a little creeped out. And you go from this barren, empty, lifeless place to a place that's now teeming and swarming and bustling and bursting with life all around because God has given the gift of life. And how does he do it? That brings us to our third and final point. There are seven formulas in the text. You see, Genesis 1 is a highly stylized narrative with lots of repetition. And seeing the repetitions can help you see the structure. And seeing the structure can help you see the meaning of the text. Gordon Wenham breaks down the text in seven different repeated formulas. Can I get that next slide, Andre? And in, in your bulletin uh, this morning under uh, the discussion questions, I've actually given you where all of these are listed as well, the verse headings for each of these. And, and here are the seven formulas that we have in Genesis 1. There's the announcement formula, and God said... Then there's the commandment formula, let there be. And the fulfillment formula, it was so. And then there's the execution or description formula that usually goes, and God made. And then there's the approval formula, and God saw that it was good. The naming or blessing formula, and God called, and God blessed. And then there's the day formula. And there was evening, and there was morning on the X day, on the first day. And I wanted to show you that in the text. Look at Genesis 1, starting in verse 3. We'll just look at day 1 here. And God said, that's the announcement formula, let there be light. This is pretty straightforward, right? Let, let there be light, that's the commandment formula, and there was light, the fulfillment formula. And God saw that the light was good, which is the approval formula. 
right? And God separated the light from the darkness, the execution formula. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night, the naming formula. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the day formula. And so with these first four formulas, and God said, let there be, and it was so, and God made, Moses is showing you that God's word is creative and powerful and effective. He speaks and it comes to be. This is creation by divine fiat. And by the way, fiat is just Latin for let there be. God's word is an expression of his will. Each step of the creation, when God says, let there be, it's an expression of his will, which means that God intends, God wants each part of his creation. And because creation is an expression of God's will, there is meaning in the universe. With the approval formula, Moses is portraying God like an artist, stepping back and delighting in the beauty of his work. Imagine, uh, imagine Michelangelo having just finished the Sistine Chapel, or Jacob Lawrence having just finished the 60th panel of the Migration series, and them stepping back and saying, wow, that's just beautiful. That's good. That's what I intended. That's what I designed, right? That's what God is saying as an artist. But notice that our creative acts, even our most beautiful creative acts, we're creating inanimate things, dead things. God is creating living things. God is creating life the approval formula. And then with the naming formula, Moses is accentuating God's sovereignty. You see, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was always the greater that blessed or named the lesser. And so with each act of naming and blessing, God is claiming lordship. And of the seven formulas, God speaks and God said 10 times. And as God speaks, there are eight commands, let there be, over the span of six days. And all the other formulas occur seven times. Now, 10 is the number of perfection and order and authority. So we have the 10 commandments, for example. And seven is the number of completion. And with these seven formulas, Moses is trying to paint you a picture He's trying to paint you a picture of a pristine, unblemished, unimaginably beautiful work of art, an indescribable paradise. I want you to think with me for just a moment here. Where's the most beautiful place that you've ever been? It, and and don't, just, don't just name it. I want you to imagine it. I want you to picture it. Do you have it? in your mind? The Bible teaches that our world is impacted by sin, such that it affects even the created order, even nature. So the most beautiful place that you've ever been is only a dim reflection 
of this sinless, perfect paradise before the fall. You see, when we live in dystopia, utopia is beyond our wildest imagination. And that's what God gave at the very beginning. That's the origin of life. Thanks, Andre. Did did you notice how many times Moses referenced Jesus here in Genesis chapter 1? It's actually, according to the Apostle John, ten times. Because meditating on Genesis chapter 1, John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. In other words, John looks back on Genesis chapter 1 and says creation is a Trinitarian act. Everything that was made was made through the Word of God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you see, just as God at the very beginning, speaks into the darkness to give the gift of life. So now, day by day, He speaks into our hearts to give us the gift of life, which is a new creation. Which is why the Apostle Paul writes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a miracle of new creation. And oh, brothers and sisters, if he's done that work in your heart, then there is one more gift that God wants to give It's the gift of life in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, when God gives us the new heavens and the new earth, it will be a pristine and unblemished, unimaginably beautiful work of art, an indescribable paradise that will no longer be affected by sin. And it will be even more beautiful than the first creation because it will be a creation redeemed where every tear will be wiped away, where there will be no more death and dying, no more curse, no more night or darkness. And His name will be written on our foreheads and we won't need the light of lamps or the sun for the Lord God will be our light. And that's the gift of life that's waiting for us in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, God created the heavens and the earth with purpose and design to give you the gift of life. You think about that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we picture the most beautiful place we've ever been, And we are encouraged by our sanctified imagination to go from the lesser to the greater, to picture a new heavens and a new earth that's pristine and unblemished. Father, would our hearts lean into the longing that one day 
we will have that gift, that gift of life. And as we do, would you remind us through this week of the treasure that's waiting for us. And may that be an encouragement to our souls. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.